This is the message from Connection Community Church for Sunday, October 14th, 2012. Parables, Pursuing a Humble Heart. Growing up, everyone in my family had their designated place at the table. You know, at dinner we sat at the same place every time. Maybe your house was like that too. My dad at one end, mom at the other, my younger sister on my left, my older sister across the table. You never had to wonder where you sat. It never changed. Now at holidays, the table expanded, as the family did, with granny and aunts and uncles and cousins. It could have gotten a little more confusing, but thanks to mom, that never happened. She would have little cards at each place with the name of the person whose seat it was. Knowing where to sit was never a problem. But what happens when we're outside our home, when we're at something a little more formal, when we don't know exactly where we're supposed to sit? How can we avoid the embarrassment of sitting at the wrong place, the the social faux pas of sitting in a place intended for someone more distinguished than you? Jesus gives us some insights this morning as we continue our series on the parables. This morning we'll look at the parable of the arrogant guest as we consider pursuing a humble heart. Well, good morning, Connection Church. My name is Carrie Jones. I'm Alan Jones. And we are two sinners who have been saved by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, the last time I stood before you, I had, I had broken my arm. I was going for my great report that I was healing just fine. And I went for that great report. And he said, you need surgery. So, uh, Wednesday a week ago, I had surgery, and guess what? I am bionic now. Yeah, got a plate, got some screws. I can't wait to go to an airport now. It should be lots of fun. Um, So, we go back to the doctor tomorrow, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to start the uh, physical therapy route that some of you already know about, and pray for me. I appreciate that. Let's pray right now. Almighty God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the word that you have given us found in scripture, Luke chapter 14. Now open our hearts so that we might receive your message. So that we could focus in on you and your word meant for each one of us here. Thank you for drawing us to this place that we might gather to worship your holy name, and to learn and to grow. We pray this in your name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of Connection Church said, Amen. Amen. And so today we continue to look at some of the (coughs) parables that Jesus shared. Uh, As we said before, a parable is a a fairly simple story that's uh, uh, purpose is to uh, share a greater principle or truth. Jesus used these frequently in his preaching and his teaching taking examples from everyday life and using them to share uh, insights into God's kingdom, into insights into God-centered living, insights into what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so today, today's parable is found in the book of Luke. That's in the second half of the Bible, and it's chapter 14. Now, we want to set up the context of this, though, before we really plunge into it. 
Luke gives us the setting. Luke tells us that Jesus is at the home of a prominent Pharisee. Pharisees, they were a group of Jews who really valued, who lived by the law, the Torah, the Jewish law. And the law was it. That is absolutely what mattered. And so we find whenever the Pharisees and Jesus were in the same place, we find that there's a conflict because Jesus uh, was ruled by love and they were ruled by rules. And so the Pharisees and Jesus often knocked heads and that's they were in fact doing just that and that's the backdrop of the story today mm. as we said jesus is at the home of a prominent pharisee it's the sabbath it's the holy day a day when no work was to be done no work and and this idea of no work you know well what's work and that leads to a variety of additional rules and regulations trying to clarify what constituted work and sometimes some of the borders that got created on it to us seemed kind of ridiculous, but I guess to some at the time they didn't. An example would be like, I read one place a few years ago where certain sandals could not be worn on the Sabbath because they were made with tacks, T-A-C-K-S, tacks, and the weight of the tacks were so, was such heavier than other sandals that that constituted more work if you wore them on the Sabbath. Some research for this morning, I was looking where it said, uh, you know, on the Sabbath, you didn't cook. If you were going to have cooked food, you would cook it the day before. And the thing was, though, if it was going to be a hot meal, you had to be very careful at warming it, uh, how you went about warming it, because if it cooked any more, then that would have been you were cooking on the Sabbath, and that was a no-no. You can see how it can get kind of ridiculous, right? And I'm sure it started out like like all of us, you know, we tend to try to uh, push the edge sometimes, you know, the question, so what's work? And is this work? Is that, you know, is that, and I'm sure that's how the question and trying to clarify and the challenges over time, as happens with a lot of things, it probably just kind of went overboard. And so we get kind of some of these stories of some of the rules and regulations and how crazy they were. And that's what we find here today. We find that here they're in the home of this Pharisee that Jesus sees a man who is suffering with dropsy. We don't use that word anymore, but dropsy is a swelling. We use the word edema, where there's swelling in a particular area. Anyway, the um, Pharisees were carefully watching Jesus to see what Jesus was going to do about this man who was hurting, who was suffering. They probably already knew because Jesus had already violated the laws, their laws, um, to heal. But they were just really trying to figure out what is Jesus going to do next. Now, some Bible scholars um, have said that they, the Pharisees, even like planted this man there to see what Jesus would do if Jesus would violate the rules. Anyway, Jesus asks them, the Pharisees, if it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And they remain silent. They're going to see what he's going to do. Actually, they know what he's going to do. And Jesus does not disappoint them. He does just that. He takes a hold of the man, heals him, and he is sent away 
healed. Mm. And then Jesus does something. I think he's trying to help enlighten the Pharisees, but I'm not sure how well that worked. He, he says to them, if, if, if your son or your ox fell into a well, there were a lot of open wells in that area at that time. If a son or an ox fell into the well, wouldn't you pull him or it out? And they didn't answer. But if they had answered, the answer would have been yes. Of course, there were, like I said, many open wells. And even on the Sabbath, if someone or one of your animals fell in, you weren't going to leave them there for a, a day until the following day. You would, you would help pull them out. And Jesus' point is, well, if you can help an animal or a person out of a well, why can't we help them out of uh, an illness or help them to get better, help them with a the healing? In other words, helping is helping, right? Come on, guys, is what he's trying to say. But they didn't see it that way. Again, we have the, the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And that's the, the, the basic conflict here. So that's the backdrop of this scripture that I'm going to read. There's sort of an arrogance that we find, an arrogance when it comes to the law, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to attitudes toward others. I'm reading now Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. When he, that's Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be Exalted. Can you say that last line with me? For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so this isn't your typical parable, is it? Because a parable, usually we expect Jesus to kind of tell a story. And he's not really telling a story here, is it? He's kind of giving direction. He's giving some social advice. It's kind of like a mismanners column here. If you go to it, this is how you should approach it so that you don't embarrass yourself publicly. Uh, when someone invites you to a wedding, do this, do this. It's very wise, very sage advice when it comes down to choosing a place at the table when you don't know, when you don't have spots designated. So what does that have to do with us right here, though? Because when we go to weddings... I don't know about you, but generally you go to the door, you pick up your your name, it has the table number, you go to your table, and we all sit together, it's an assigned seat, and in fact, oftentimes the tables are circular so that there is no place of greater importance. Yeah, well, this is why this is a parable, because I I don't think Jesus is giving us uh, some just basically giving us a social thing here, just trying to be Ann Landers for us or something, you know, how to uh, how to choose a spot at a wedding bank. Although that's the premise, that's what he offers, I think it mows much deeper. It's about more than locating your seat. Basically, this parable is about, um, well, it's about locating your place not just at the table, 
but locating your place in the world, okay? Locating your place in the world, um, knowing where you stand, um, uh, not thinking where you are is above where you really should be, not that you're better than or above those around you. Um, uh, we're, uh, this isn't from script, but our title that we came up with is uh, it's about pursuing a humble heart. And you take that word pursuing. It's a it's an action word. It's a verb that's ongoing. It's not like done and over. It's ongoing, um, an ongoing adventure, an ongoing challenge, a never ending quest to find humility. Uh, uh, I think you would agree. Finding humility, being humble is an is an everyday challenge. Amen. Amen. Everyday challenge. So then the question is, why is this so important and why is it so challenging? Well, let's start with the challenging first. You know, we're naturally self-centered. That's kind of like how we're wired because in the very beginning, you know, we have, we come out as a little tiny baby. We have a new baby in our our family, Harper Elizabeth. She is, by the way, you know, the most gorgeous little baby in the world. Everybody in the family agrees. Absolutely. We all agree about that. And... As of uh, last night, it was a great reminder, she is absolutely selfish. (laughs) You know, Devin couldn't get a bite of dinner in without Harper wanting to be fed first. Or TC couldn't sit down without Harper squawking, and it turns out that her diaper needed to be changed after it had just been changed 10 minutes before. Or she was fed and she's diapered and she just wanted to be held. Totally self-centered. Now, that's not bashing on our new granddaughter, Harper, at this point. I mean, poor kid, she's only two weeks old. And we're already using her in a sermon. We're already using her in a sermon. And Devin and TC are probably exhausted. That's probably, this is one of the first Sundays they haven't made. (laughs) But the bottom line is that we're born selfish. We are born with our own wants and needs. And as a baby, that's all they're concerned about. Their wants and their needs and that the focus needs to be on them. Poor little heart. Not even a month old and already the, the, the point of a message. You know? Okay, so let's go on to three-year-old mm-hmm. Jacob. We could talk sure. about it. <laughs> anyway, um, not Jacob, but just uh, let's go ahead a few years to uh, uh, and maybe it's age two, three. It might even be age 19 or 20. <laughs> or 40 or <laughs> We're, we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, the child can now talk, uh, walk, dress him or herself, uh, do a lot of things for themselves. Yeah. And rather than crying now, able most of the time to express their needs quite verbally or their wants. And still, for the most part, fairly self-centered. Can I get an amen? Now, for you who are in those age brackets that I just mentioned, this isn't an attack on you at all. Because actually that age goes 2, 3, 18, 19, 40, 50, 70, not on up the scale. Because our natural tendency seems to be me. And if, if there's any way that we get around that, it's because we've been trained up, we've been educated, we've been directed, we've been guided, we've been forced by somebody, a parent, coach, teacher, some, to recognize that it's not all about me. Amen? Mm-hmm. But when push comes to shove and, 
and it gets tough, we, our tendency would be to revert right back to, I'm the center of the universe. Amen? Amen. And that's that was like three to, amens about that. A, this is a very serious yeah. topic, Yeah, this Karen. is, yeah. This is a very focused topic. We do what comes uh, naturally, and we live in a world then, if we're not careful and if we don't follow some things, that it's all about me. And that's why it's so challenging. That is the challenge, but so why is it so important? You know, humility is found many, many, many times in Scripture, like over a hundred times in Scripture. Why does Jesus over and over and over again talk about humbling oneself? Why does Jesus talk over and over again about putting others ahead of ourselves, about being last rather than first? Why? Is it only to save face so that we're not embarrassed in situations like wedding feasts? I think not. But could it be because oftentimes our own self-interests rule the day rather than thinking about what God would want or thinking about others? That could be. I think what it boils down to is something that we actually we talk about a lot here. Um, and it's not because we're not aware that we're talking about it. It's just that it keeps coming back that we talked about it. Just in this parable series, when we talked about the uh, the Good Samaritan, um, it just keeps coming up in the Christian walk. Basically, it's what the uh, the commandments they all can be boiled down to. What Jesus responded when someone asked him, "What do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of heaven?" He said, "Well, it comes down to these two things: one you find in Deuteronomy, one in Leviticus. Love the Lord God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor." As yourself, as Jesus pointed out, all the laws basically come down to these two things. And the thing is, see, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to love the Lord God with everything you've got if you're at the center of your universe. It's impossible to love your neighbor as yourself if you're number one, because there's only one number one. So you can't possibly love them if you're in that number that much if you're in that number one spot if we consistently put ourselves at the center of the universe. You know, when we boil it all down, when we get to the very core of things, basically all of our sins have to do with pride. Our sins have to do with pride. They're sins of pride when we put ourselves ahead of what God wants for us. When we think that we know better than God, that's being very prideful. That's being very arrogant. You know, arrogance, an excessively high opinion of oneself, where we're the center of the universe, where things really should revolve around ourselves, us, including God. When we look at the word pride, There's a letter that's right smack dab in the middle of that. What letter do you see? I. I is in the middle of pride. So I thought, okay, what what would be the opposite of pride? So I figured I'll I'll do it officially. I I had an idea, but I went into the dictionary, thesaurus or whatever, and I looked up the antonym. There's a word for you. How many of you used the word antonym this week? (laughs) Very good. (laughs) English teacher. (laughs) Okay, so antonym, you know, the opposite from 8th, ninth, 10th grade English or whatever, the opposite. If you look in the antonym of pride and you're going to find humility, humbleness, 
exactly what I'm talking about today. The exact opposite. And the thing is, if it's the opposite, you can't have them both in the... They don't occupy the same space. If you have pride, you're not going to have humility. On the flip side, though, if you can be humble, then you're not going to be prideful. Let's talk about what being humble is not. Humble is not putting yourself down. Humble is not this self-deprecating attitude. Humble isn't about low self-esteem at all. Humble, actually, we need to love ourselves in order to love others. And we can do that humbly in a way that is not puffed up. To be truly humble means to have a positive sense of self, but not an overly inflated sense of self. To be humble means to appreciate the person who God created you to be and appreciate others the way God created them to be. Not to find fault with that creation. To be humble means to have a healthy sense of who Jesus is, who others are, and who we are. And it's all in relationship to one another. We take a look at the word joy, Jesus, others, and you. You see Jesus first, and then thinking about others, not being a doormat, and then you. There's a a writer and a speaker. His name is Ken Blanchard. He's he's quite well-known. And he, you know, on the back of books, there are, you know, different things that famous people write in support of books. Well, there's this book that we've used to... Um, help with this message. It's called Humilitas by John Dixon. It's a great book, Humilitas by John Dixon. Anyway, Ken Blanchard writes this on the back of that book. He says, I am a firm believer, as is John Dixon, that people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. Can we say that together? I am a firm believer, as is John Dixon, that people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less. And in that same book, Humilitas, by John Dixon, he shares that in ancient Greece and Rome, humility was a negative word, a negative concept. Self-honor was what was prized in those communities. But a revolution took place in the mid-first century A.D. that absolutely turned that upside down, changed all that. A revolution in thinking that was brought about by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one, through his birth in a humble stable in a manger, all the way through his allowing himself to be hung on a cross to die, he changed that thinking on humility. Greatness had to be redefined after Jesus allowed himself to hang on that cross. And it was Jesus' self-sacrifice then became very much a positive. This, this, uh, this, uh, <clears throat> uh, this way of uh, killing people who had committed horrible crimes, it was the most horrible uh, death uh, known, so to speak, 
now all of a sudden wasn't a bad thing, but in Christ, that crucifixion becomes a positive. Self-sacrifice rather than self-honor becomes a mark of greatness, humble greatness. Now, John Dixon goes on to share that oftentimes the most influential and inspiring leaders are leaders who are humble. When we think about different leaders in our country and in our world, uh, different names pop up. He says that when leaders are aloof, they might be admired, but people generally don't try to emulate them. People, when leaders are humble, when they appear like us, we admire them and we aspire to be more like them. When we were in seminary, uh, one of the uh, requirements was that we would have a, um, an experience in uh, a culture other than what we were familiar or comfortable in. And there was a vice president at the Wesley Seminary, and she was from Korea. She'd run up and gone to school there. She was Korean. And so she made a cultural immersion in Korea a possibility. And it was, I mean, basically for our cost of airfare, we were able to be in Korea for like two and a half, three weeks. It was, wow, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. So we took it. And, and while there, we had the opportunity to uh, take a tour and basically a day at the Hyundai plant where in this particular plant they on the one part they made the automobiles but on the other part I don't know if you know Hyundai's one of like the it's like at the time it was like the sixth largest shipbuilder in the world. And so this huge plant and we had this guy who was taking us around dressed fairly uh, like you know khakis or some kind of a Just shirt. Just like one, everybody else on the line. Yeah a zip up jacket kind of a utility jacket. Looked like an, an average maybe uh, the fact that he was taking us around we figured maybe he was well, we asked him, we said, are you in charge of this place? He said, oh, no, no, no. Made it quite clear that that, no way is he in charge. And made us think that maybe he was a middle or even a low middle manager of some sort who'd been assigned to take us around. We find in the later on in the day that this fellow was the number three guy in charge of this operation. Not, no, he was right. He wasn't number or number one guy. He was two notches under that. He was the number three of this huge operation. Yeah, we never would have guessed that, not not because of his intelligence or his uh, connectedness to us, but because of his humble spirit. And it's interesting I bring that here today because it's been like 15 years. And the reason I remember him wasn't how he looked or how he talked. What made me remember him was his absolute, he's one of the most humble people we've ever met. And it just rings through everything he did that day. Unbelievable. So we're reminded in the Bible, there's a letter that Paul and Timothy wrote to the church at Philippi. I'd like to read to you Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Say the rest with me. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As John Dixon, the author of that book, Humilitas, shares, at the center of everything is the cross. The center of everything. The ultimate self-giving of the Almighty. And so our challenge then, our challenge as followers of Christ is to not only value humility, but do our best to imitate Christ, to put on Christ, so to speak, and to do what Christ does and act like Christ is, knowing that we're not perfect. There's only one perfect, and that's Christ. But to humble ourselves before the Most High God, to exalt to lift up the name of Jesus, to love one another, always, always remembering for all those, in fact, say it with me, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's believe it. Let's live it. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for this word. It's kind of a toe stepper, I think, God. Because we all have room to grow on this one. Because there are times when we slip into that place where we want the world to revolve around me each one of us. And God, um, draw each one of us close, that your mercy really does cover us, that, that you carry us. Help us honor and value one another. Help us know and receive your love and your grace, your mercy, your compassion, and live out loving you with everything we've got and loving our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for your word found in scripture. We pray that um, we can really soak it all in so that we can live with humility. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we conclude our service, um, you're invited to pray. You can pray from your seats. You can come up and pray on the steps. Talk to God about those areas in your life where you might need to take a look. I I know what I'm getting hit on right now. But it's our time to kind of get real with God. There's also a 
Lisa and Donnie are back in the prayer corner if you'd like to receive prayer about anything, anything going on in your life. They are just there waiting for that. So I invite you to, to pray, to stand, to sing, whatever the Holy Spirit's leading you to do right now. Let's worship. Thank you for joining us for our podcast. For more information about Connection Community Church in Middletown, Delaware, please visit our website at www.connectioncc.org. You can also call our church offices at 302-378-7692. Connection Community Church, connecting people with Jesus and the life that he offers. Thank you.